Hey everyone, Father John Ricardo, Acts 29. I had a chance recently to join Dr. Scott Hahn, who I'm sure is familiar to most of us from either his books or perhaps we've heard him speak someplace, or maybe we had him as a professor at the Franciscan University down in Steubenville, or maybe we know the great work that the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology does. We got together for a, a podcast episode for the St. Paul Center recently, and we thought this week that we'd air that, especially since uh, Nick is home this week, taking care of his beloved wife and mother of their newborn daughter, Anne Catherine. So Mary, Nick, and myself will be back next week, good Lord willing, for our regularly scheduled episode. This week, we invite you to join in and uh, go deep with Dr. Hahn and myself as we reflect upon the scriptures and the food that they offer us, especially in this time of quarantine. God bless. Hey, Scott, how you doing, brother? It's great to see you. Great to see you, too. Are you We're doing well here. Healthy, yeah, healthy, keeping busy. Yeah, a lot healthier down here in this part of Ohio than I suspect you are up there in Michigan. Yeah, it's been a crazy time, and yet, um, despite all the pain, it, there's been a tremendous grace that God's pouring out on his people in the church, I think. Yeah, we were grateful about 50 days ago to get back our two sons, Jeremiah and Joseph, who were there at Sacred Heart Seminary, uh, studying for obviously for the priesthood, but uh, Jeremiah is scheduled to be ordained to the transitional diaconate in a little less than a month. That was postponed, though, from uh, Palm Sunday weekend. Uh, but we have had the greatest time as a family with those two sons of ours here for 50 days leading us in the divine office. We have never prayed the breviary as a family together. And uh, when Jeremiah got back, I said, okay, well, if we have a a diaconal candidate in the house, perhaps he ought to lead us in prayer. And boy, did he step up to the task. We just said goodbye to him and Joe. They took their summer assignments here in the last three days. Uh, Joe went down to Marietta, the Basilica of St. Mary, and Jeremiah went back to Cambridge, Ohio, to be with Father Paul Rezzo, who is uh, the priest who kind of uh, mentored him for his apostolic year as well. So uh, we're near empty nesters, but... Uh, Going through this, it's a strangely grace-filled time. I mean, from Lent through Holy Week until the present, I just really hope and pray that Pentecost will bring the mystical body of Christ out of the coronavirus tomb, as it were, and empower us to get back to our work. Don't you think one of the real graces has been uh, an opportunity, at least for a reclamation of the family as the first church? Yeah, you know, I hear the stories about how People are isolated or people are alienated in terms of, you know, marriages that are strained and drinking or drugs or whatever, you know. And we pray for those people because that's obviously going to be a struggle for some. But I know of so many other families like ours that have just kind of stepped up to the special graces that none of us saw coming. And, you know, I think back to um, the sabbatical year that came every seven years uh, to Israel, according to the laws in Leviticus 25, and then the Jubilee as well. And, you know, I got a good friend, Dr. John Bergsman, who is on sabbatical for the whole year. Uh, never in his wildest dreams did he imagine, though, that he didn't have to apply for a sabbatical. All he had to do was just kind of wake up to this virus. But we feel as though, you know, we've entered into a season of grace that is sort of like the Sabbath year, where the land lies fallow. You know, hopefully the debts are going to be rescinded. But families have to kind of regroup, and uh, we have. And it's it's sort of a, I don't want to say, oh, I hope it continues, because obviously there's just so much tragedy around. But uh, 
I hope it continues. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've got a set of friends uh, who are pretty high-powered executives, and they've all just confessed to me, Father, I, we, we, I don't really want to go back. You know, we, we're doing meals together every night. We're, we're praying together every day. I go for walks with my kids. Um, I was getting pictures from probably half a dozen families uh, on Holy Thursday of the father washing his kids' feet and his wife's feet. Um, saw stories of people uh, like dads leading their family in a renewal of baptismal promises on Holy Saturday night. I mean, it's just been really moving to see what's going on in family life, at least in many families. Um, and I pray, since we're certainly in Michigan anyway, we're not going back to normal for a long time, that this just helps families realize, hey, I got to really step into my role. Uh, fathers to step into the, the role of, you know, priests of the house together with his wife and, uh, and to teach the faith and not re- have to rely on father to do all that or the parish staff to do all that. It really is. And this is at the heart of so much of your work. This is the role that belongs in the home. When I think about the ways in which we have missed out on masses, daily mass, Sunday mass, but at the same time, you know, the live streaming opportunities, uh, the Franciscans here at the university, as well as, you know, we've had uh, uh, a number of archbishops and we had, you know, Bishop uh, Barron too, but we set up a little table in front of the screen with two candles and a crucifix and we stand and we kneel and that sort of thing. The family rosary as well as the divine office, but a lot of really good movies. And perhaps best of all, we got to see that series called The Chosen. Oh, I'm watching that now. Isn't it amazing? Oh my gosh. I I have, I, I despise things like this typically. I just don't have low expectations. I am so moved. I'm like crying in every episode. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that because we heard about it. And then on Holy Week, it was live streamed for free on YouTube or whatever it was, VidAngel. And, and we watched it. And likewise, we don't have high expectations when it comes to Christian or Catholic productions. And perhaps that's why we loved it so much initially, but it just got better and better and better. And I can't imagine a better series to watch during Holy Week in preparation for the Triduum. And I mean, tears for each and every one of us. You know, it's funny because I posted it on Facebook uh, because it was just such a spiritual high for us. And it was so unexpected. And then I found out that uh, Jonathan Rumi, the actor who plays Jesus, who does such a masterful job, picked up on me putting it on Facebook. And so he put it on his, and then we ended up sending messages back to each other, back and forth to each other. And we ended up on the phone as well. And now we're collaborating and it's like, finally, Catholics are getting on board. And I'm like, Jonathan, you know, until Catholics show up to the party, it's not a party. That's know? exactly right. It's going to take off and... It's been exciting to stay connected to him and uh, get, enter into his network. He's from Long Island, but he's out there in L.A. And I do hope whoever is listening to us or watching will kind of uh, make a point, a priority of uh, looking up The Chosen and watching it because I have never seen the the stories in the gospel and the personalities come to life, and especially our Lord. I mean, he he, he plays Jesus in a way it's like, it's so fully human, but it's also the way the divine and the human would be united in a way that's sort of understated, but just irresistible. Yeah, I, I've said the same thing to people. Uh, he is so engaging and so uh, magnetic, but in a not over-the-top way. And he's playful. 
And he's every, he's everything that you know Jesus had to be. And, and is, I should say, right? Because nobody follows somebody who's stoic. Yeah. And when you see him, you're like, Jesus, if you're like that, I want to get to know you a lot better. I want to get closer to you. I, I, I found myself being able to pray singularly to Jesus as a person, you know, after each episode. And I heard the same thing from Kimberly and the kids as well. Yeah, I, I remember uh, without giving the spoiler alert, although you know Mary Magdalene and everybody, but that there's that incredible scene when he uh, frees her and then she's trying to describe what it is that happened. And she says, I was one way, I became another way. And the thing that happened in between was him. Yeah. And I mean, that she said that, and I just started to ball. And uh, I mean, it was just so moving. I'm so encouraged to hear that you've been watching it and that you loved it too, because uh, I'm trying to recommend it to everybody that I know too. Oh, I'm glad we can do it together. You know, um, I have two uh, two older kids, uh, Dr. Han the Younger, who is a professor of scripture now at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg. And he is really hard to please. And he really enjoys it. And we were talking about Nicodemus. And I, again, a spoiler alert. You know, I thought, well, that is a delicate operation. But they did it so well. You can tell that the people who are collaborating on the writing as well as the cinematography and acting, scripting. I mean, they have immersed themselves not only in the, in the text of the gospel, but in the persons as characters, but the personalities as well. I, I must admit that Nicodemus has jumped off the page for me and come alive in a way that will affect my teaching and reading. Yeah. And uh, wow, I, I I pray for season two, that it can rise to the level of the first season, you know, which I guess the first episodes were done almost two years ago. Right. Um, but it's right. only being being discovered now by more and more people. It's interesting. You know, I, I don't know how you've experienced this season of Easter yet, but um, one of the things that I've been holding on to in the scriptures because one of the another one of the graces, right, is that all people have, quote unquote, all they have to feed on is the the scriptures right now, which is at the heart of all your work, I know. And so there's this increased hunger for the word of God. And please God, it will lead to a deeper hunger for the Eucharist when we can go back. But um, in a way, I can never remember being led to pray with that there's a, a passage in uh, Acts four, you know, after Peter and John uh, heal the crippled man. And then they're brought in and they're on, you know, they're trying to defend what happened. And when they say, you know, it's impossible for us not to speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. And before in the past, that and what we've heard, it just never really impacted me in the way it has right now. But for whatever reason, the spirit, and this plays into the portrayal of the characters in The Chosen, has just really led me to meditate on the conversations that must have been taking place between the apostles and Jesus post-resurrection. I think sometimes people, and me too probably, I just have this image that Jesus is popping up every once in a while, and, and that's about it. But you got to believe what they're talking about had to have been astounding stuff. Like if, if I'm Peter or John or James, I want to know like, so what was it like when you walked into hell and Satan realized what just happened. You know, like, what was it like when Joseph saw you come to get him in Sheol? What was it like to die? Um, 
What were you doing on the cross? All the questions that we have, right, that we want to ask God, they had to have been asking God. (laughs) And Jesus had to have been engaging as all get out. And I, I try to picture the laughter that must have been taking place, which is so beautifully showed in the, uh, in the chosen, right? I mean, I think after the miracle of Cana, Peter says to him, first fish, now wine, what's next? You know, and Jesus says, we'll see. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's just such an engaging look. And, and it's that encounter with the risen Jesus, which just brings astounding freedom to the 12 as they go out and proclaim, right? You know, go back to that point that you just made about, you know, Scripture and how important it has become, at least for a lot of us. I mean, it always was for me. But in this season of grace, it has taken on a sort of centrality even more than before. Um, And I I was talking recently to my daughter, and uh, she's got four kids and busy mom and all of that. And she's not like the, um, the paragon of piety. She is deeply committed and faithful and all. But she said, Dad, I can't believe how much I've taken the mass for granted almost all of my life. You know, and now I find myself hungering for Holy Communion like never before. But we have no idea when we get to go back. But when I do, you know, I'm going to receive in a whole new way. But in between, you know, then and now, I think we get to feed on the bread of life. And I I also think, you know, there, that there is a kind of one hand washes the other because as we watch the chosen and then return to the gospels, both the public ministry as well as the passion, death, and resurrection scenes, it was so um, it was so alive. I mean, you could use the word personalistic, but that kind of falls short because it's just too much of an abstraction. Um, but the other thing too that came back to me was something that uh, you know occurred to me, I think about a year ago when I was on a retreat, uh, my annual retreat, and I, I was hearing Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, again, for the umpteenth time, and I'm thinking, okay, it's always been something new, but I mean, you, you gotta run out of new things eventually. And, and what struck me then, and what's hit me even harder now in this season is, uh, here is Jesus on Easter Sunday, and he doesn't disclose his identity as the risen savior, not for hours, not for mile after mile, you know, and what is he doing on Easter Sunday? He's opening up the scriptures. Now, why? I mean, you have been abandoned and betrayed. You have been crucified. You descended into hell. There are so many other matters besides the law and the prophets that we would like to attend to, you know, and I think our Lord did clearly intend for them to have at it, you know, ask me what it was like, you know, down in shale or whatever else. But before we do that, let me set the table for you. Let me provide a banquet so that your hearts are burning, so that when your eyes are open, it isn't just a flashback or it isn't just like, oh, I'm so relieved. Let's get back to where we were and press the reset button. The scriptures alone are the things that illuminate all of the experiences that they had and bring it together to recognize, okay, We didn't just survive the most abject failure we've ever known in our experience. No, there is a fulfillment that is happening, you know, right under our eyes, right under our noses, that that when we thought it was the the, the darkest hour, the greatest crime that human race has ever committed against Almighty God, Almighty God was bleeding and dying for our salvation, fulfilling all of the promises. You know, it's like, 
how could we have missed this, you know, and how can you possibly understand it? And yet it isn't as though it just ends up being a bunch of talking points and sound doctrine, you know, so that you can look at the, the truth that you heard since you were a kid and realize, wow, it's still true. No, the truths just take on a life of their own. And the life is Jesus, you know, who is back from the grave and who's here for us in ways that we never even thought of asking God to be here for us. So similar way, this um, this Easter season early on when Luke 24 was the gospel for Mass, and as I was praying with the text this year, what struck me, so everybody knows, right, like their eyes are opened at the breaking of the bread, but once they're opened, what do they do? They go back to the walk and they recount how they felt when he was explaining the word, right? Like that's what hit me too. So just obviously Emmaus is, is, uh, is this beautiful template of both elements of the mass. Maybe we could say, right. The breaking open of the scriptures and then the breaking of the bread. But I think most people uh, miss the first part that their response after seeing him and knowing who it is now is to go back to the scriptures, which he explained, which just like you said, what hit me this year, as I was praying with it, was not just, hey, these are some cool connections. No, this is, um, Francis Martin always used to say when he was uh, teaching us, revelation is healing. Mm-hmm. Like the word of God is healing. And so people, when they encounter the word of God, um, it brings transformation and healing to our lives, not just, oh, that's interesting, or that's neat. Yeah, because it's it's the disclosure of a person. It's a, the deepening of a relationship, but it is redemption. Yeah, it's healing. Yeah, and, and how timely, right, for right now. I mean, so in an age in which we're living, where, I mean, almost daily, the, the news reports are warning us for an increase in what sociologists call deaths of despair, brought on by, what, the panic of, I've lost my job. Uh, I have no certainty about the future. Um how, how important it is for us as disciples of Jesus to be able to explain to people the story <laughs> so that their anxiety and their fear can be shattered or better can be healed by the truth that God reveals to us in scripture, which is telling us of the things that he's done for us in his son. Right. Yeah. And you happen to write an amazing book on this. I know because I just read it. Oh yeah. Well, I did write it with Emily Stimson Chapman and we did have very set purposes. And we also had established a a timing so that it would come out Easter of 2020, but never in our wildest dreams did we imagine that this coronavirus would erupt. And, And so it was at the end of February, as we're just finishing final edits, I called the publisher and said, stop the presses. We have to address this. We have to rewrite that last chapter. And so I went to town and I just began to kind of contextualize this book, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body in view of what was obviously on God's mind. And that was to confront us with our fear of suffering and our fear of dying. And I can't help but wonder if the world has been awakened to just not only how inevitable suffering and death is, but also to how inordinate our fear of it. I mean, There's nothing wrong with being afraid of illness and dying. In fact, there's something wrong with not being afraid. But this fear has become so great, it paralyzes. And it's sort of now becoming more aware of how it isn't just like restarting the economy. 
it's kind of reawakening in us the sense of, well, the mortality rate, which is, after all, 100%. None of us are going to get out of here alive. But the immortality rate is 100%. Everybody who ever lives here and now or ever lived in the past will still live forever in one state or another. And I think that's the thing that has been forgotten, even among Christians, that uh, that eternity is a long time, a lot longer than this life is. And what Christ has done for us, you know, through the incarnation, through the Paschal mystery, and especially through the resurrection, was to do was to take healing to a whole new level. I mean, it's one thing to heal the lepers and the blind and the deaf and the dumb and to deliver those who are in the possession of evil spirits. Uh, but it's another thing to deliver us from our fear, which in so many ways is paralyzing us. And it kind of backs us into all kinds of sinful situations where we end up ensnared and addicted and, you know, not realizing that... Um, Illness in so many ways is like a divine alarm clock. It's a wake-up call to show us that, uh, you know, the things that you dread the most are in a certain sense inevitable. And what you ought to dread more is what it is that you do when you misuse free will and you commit mortal sin and you snuff out that life within your soul that is not just human but divine. It's not just natural. It's supernatural. It's everlasting. And it's far more valuable than the physical life that we seem to just focus on exclusively. But it's also much more vulnerable. And so uh, it isn't as though we are simply divinized and in the process dehumanized. No, what Christ does is to enter into our humanity and not just to kind of hold his divine breath for 33 years, but to transform every aspect of our life in relationship to God so that the resurrection ultimately leads us to something that helps us to appreciate not only how our souls are infused with divine life, but our bodies are too. And so that through ordinary interaction, through our chores, in our relationships, in our hardships, we can encounter Jesus in a way that even the prophets couldn't imagine. And so, you know, I'm, I must say I'm in awe of our Lord in his timing for a book called Hope to Die, you know, and mm. it's focusing on hope, which I think you know is sort of the, the Cinderella of the three theological virtues. We all know, proclaim the faith. We all know that we've got to love, but I'm not sure we're really all that in tune with what hope means. And I mean, you hope to win the lottery, the World Series, or the Super Bowl, but I mean, this kind of hope is so grounded in the relationship that is constituted by faith. But I, I'm telling you things that you already know, but... Yeah, I'm I'm in awe and gratitude of what our Lord has done in kind of timing this book in a way that no, none of us could have seen. No, I think your timing's uh, providential as well. I, I, I think I experienced personally the first couple of weeks of the shutdown as it was as if, again, we're, we were in the season of Lent at the time. And it, uh, it was uh, almost like our modern equivalent of Exodus and God just rendering judgment on the idols of Egypt. Right. So he's striking down all their idols. And that's how I experienced the first few weeks anyway of the shutdown was just like every idol of our culture got exposed as being um, frail. So sports, the economy, um, this ridiculous illusion that we're on this steady upward path, um, that I can delay death, that, um, that we'll find the cure 
for what really ails our race. Anything that tried to offer hope, lasting hope, just got exposed as, no, there's no hope in anything or anyone but me, the Lord says. And God is faithful, and he's done something to to liberate us um, from the fear of death and from the power of death. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of Psalm 2, where the Lord hears them from heaven, and he laughs. And we translate that he laughs in derision, and so we get a wrong wrong picture, you know, that God is up there just kind of, you know, snarling and saying it's payback time. Well, you know, what he's really doing is he's he's exposing all of the superficial props that we've been leaning our lives on and building our society on as well. And the laughter, I think, in so many ways needs to ultimately trace back to his love because, you know, he's not like punishing us to get even. He is punishing us in a certain sense because we have certainly forgotten him. We have broken the covenant, but, you know, not getting back at us, it's so much as getting us back to him and getting us back to ourselves and to each other as well. And uh, I think that is the divine plan. And it doesn't, it doesn't reduce punishment to mere metaphor, but it does explain whatever punitive aspects, you know, whatever judgment we receive from God, we'll see that the only way to make sense out of it is to understand it in the light of love. The inner logic of his love is so often elusive, but once you begin to see it, you're like, okay, wow, I can trust him, especially if his word to us is embodied in Jesus. And I think, you know, as I think about the title, which I love of the book, because even most Christians, right, I don't think look forward to what's next. I think so many of us have this mentality of heaven's less, <laughs> tragically, right? And um, I have a friend of mine, he's a priest uh, in another diocese, and he always says, you will never be able to make sense out of your life until you first make sense of your death. And so you work backwards, you know? So we ask people all the time, how you doing? Well, I'm still on this side of the grass. Well, that's a terrible answer. Right. I mean, at least to me it is, you know, like, um, I don't want to waste my life here, but the, the great answer is life is Christ, death is gain, because blessed are those who die in the Lord. And so if I know death is gain, because I, I, I enter into all that the Lord has promised for us, now I have a totally new orientation to how am I going to live my life? Suddenly the things that hold me bound, or that I think are what life's all about, they take their rightful place. Now I got a, I got a new approach to money. I got a new approach to uh, what I'm going to travel, what, how, how I'm going to spend my time, uh, how I'm going to pour into my job. I mean, all those things get totally inverted once you realize um, that death is gain, which only a Christian can say. Right. You know, when Paul says that in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, for me to live is Christ. I mean, it is Christ in me, you know, and and in you as well. Uh, And so in a certain sense, that's gain. But when we live in Christ and he lives in us, then death is sort of like the windfall. You know, it it really is the uh, the homecoming. And I I think the key is to understand Christ in me, the hope of glory. Um, Because it isn't just sort of like a, a spiritual sense that I sometimes have and then lose, you know, it is, I think, what we realize and celebrate in the Holy Eucharist. I mean, it's true in 101 different ways, but nowhere is it more true when you receive Holy Communion. And so to be to be kind of held back from going to the Mass, from 
you know, only seeing it on television, you know, making an act of spiritual communion. I mean, these things are real. They're powerful. And they are profound in our own life as family and for me personally. But, you know, what they do, I, just the other day, Father Dave Bavanka, working with the Bishop of Steubenville, opened up Eucharistic adoration, but not in the chapel because we'd be too close, but in the field house where we're at least six to eight feet apart. But I mean, to get that close, to get back to our Lord in the Eucharist, wow. You know, one of the things I'm hoping to accomplish in this book, you know, and normally as the author, I am interviewed by people. But since you mentioned you've read it, I, I might be turning the tables around on you in just a minute or two and ask you questions about what the takeaway for you as a preacher, as a pastor, a priest would be. But the thing that's really hit me is sort of like the trajectory that has um, begun with the Lamb's Supper or the Fourth Cup. The idea that, uh, okay, we profess our belief in the real presence of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. But those are more than Catholic talking points. It's more than sound doctrine. There is a reality hidden in a mystery, but the reality is not less real because it's a mystery. So it's the same body that was in the in the upper room with the disciples on Holy Thursday. It's obviously the same body that was on the cross and the same body that was buried in the tomb. But what I think some people miss is that it is more specifically and precisely the body of the risen Savior. It is the resurrected body of Jesus, which is sort of why Jesus chose to withhold his identity from Clopas and his companion for all of those many hours and why he wasn't wasting Easter Sunday leading one and then another long Bible study on the road to Emmaus in the late morning and early afternoon, then again with the disciples in the upper room that evening. No, it really is the fulfillment of the, the law and the prophets to see the risen Savior in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread and to recognize that, okay, it looks like bread, it tastes like bread, but it is the body of Christ resurrected. Resurrected, not resuscitated, because there really is a divinization of Christ's humanity that has occurred that surpasses anything Lazarus could have described for us after four days. It is more than his innocence being vindicated. It's more than the prophecies being fulfilled. I mean, it is a historical event as well. Eyewitnesses, an empty tomb, and all of that. But the the mystery of the faith, Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Eucharist, you know, ordinary food, we assimilate that to our bodies like bread and wine or hamburgers and fries and salad. But when we receive Holy Communion, the resurrected body of Christ assimilates our mortal bodies to himself and sets into motion something that is, you know, more than nuclear fission or fusion. It, you know, it's the way in which he's going to ultimately bring about the fulfillment of that promise that he gave the disciples in the Bread of Life discourse back in John 6. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. I will transform your mortal bodies into my immortal, resurrected, and glorified body. The Holy Spirit renders my body, blood, soul, and divinity communicable, literally edible. But it's not just deified for me. It is deifying you if you let it. But it's going to be deifying us as we go back to Jerusalem and bear witness to Jesus, as we as we talk among ourselves and bear witness to the truth and how extraordinarily loved we are by Abba Father in the gift of Jesus. And it just got to reach beyond the realm of an effective rhetorical delivery. It's got to really sink deeply into our hearts 
So we're like, this is just too good to be true unless it is the truth of the gospel, which it most assuredly is. Yeah, and I think what personally struck me the most, uh, maybe it's because of the the work that I'm doing now. So uh, the, the work that we do, we use as a tagline, if you will, God wants his world back. And we're trying to continually um, try to pour into priests and to lay uh, folks as well to help them understand not only God's plan for the world, which you've always talked about so well. But the thing that I don't think most Catholics get is what's our mission in it. And so there's a chapter that you have in the book called um, the renovation of the universe. And that, that, I think that's what struck me the most because it's a theme that I pray with all the time. And so I think uh, a lot of us don't really know what are we supposed to be doing right now until the Lord comes back. Okay. So I I encounter Jesus. I, I surrender my life to him in faith aside from trying to grow in holiness, what am I supposed to be doing? And so you talked about Paul, and when Paul says, you know, life is Christ, the the theme that's just been something that's been personally hitting me and that I'm trying to share with everybody is, so now what I'm supposed to do, you know, like the resurrection is this moment in time of the beginning of the renovation of the universe, right? So, that's not going to happen fully until the Lord comes back in glory. But my task, my mission, my role in life as a disciple of Jesus is it's not a me and Jesus two-step. It's I'm supposed to be, um, I think C.S. Lewis calls it an agent of sabotage, mm-hmm. which I love. You know, so the Eucharist, you know, is supposed to transform me. The spirit descends upon me, is given to me, and equips me to now be an active agent in the Lord's hands to do what I can to build for the kingdom, to do my part in renovating the universe, starting with my own personal space right here, my family, my children, my work, trying to do everything I can in whatever sphere of life I'm in to bring it into harmony with the Father's plan, mindful that we can't build a utopia. You know, it's never going to fully happen until Jesus comes back, but to do it in such a way that with the weapons of truth and goodness and beauty and charity uh, and reconciliation, we undo what the enemy has done in our world. That's what personally just hits me. And I, I love that image. So hope to die. And now I have a reorientation to life because of what I understand is going to happen then. So now, like, let's get to work, you know, especially for a man, like, let's get to work. I mean, I don't know a man who doesn't want to be an agent of sabotage. So the one who's called me to this is the one who's not just kind and gentle and loving and patient. Jesus is all those things, but he's so much more. He is the unconquerable Lord of history who has crushed death and crushed sin and gone to battle for us. And now he's called you and me to follow him and to engage in the work that he wants us to be engaged in until he comes back and he puts it all right. That's what hit me. I mean, you've got my heart and my mind both racing right now. I'm not even sure what I can catch up with. Um, This idea of renovation though, you know, Christ says, I make all things new, not I make new things. And so we're not just looking for the sequel to planet Earth. You know, we're not just looking for a sequel to this body. You know, my body 2.0, it'll look a lot like this body, but it'll be a lot better. It'll be a different body. No, 
it will be this body sown mortally perishable, corruptible, and yet raised imperishable, raised incorruptible. And the fact is that he is going to renew this earth and not just eschatologically at the end of time. You know, hope to die is based upon the fact that we hope to rise. And that's the way we live. And you think about how God chose to do it. You know, he didn't send Jesus to Rome and uh, convince the 12 most popular articulate senators to kind of join him. You know, born in the backwaters of, you know, Judea and then up in Galilee and Nazareth. It's like, you know, you're going to redeem the world and you're going to what? Wait for 30 years and then minister for three years, suffer, die and rise in three days. It's like, you know, everything just seems cattywampus, disproportionate, backwards, you know. And yet, you know, if we were to ask him, you know, in his 20s, up in Nazareth, working with his father, you know, when are you going to get started redeeming the world? I think he'd look at us and say, I am. I mean, I am in the work that I'm doing, in the relationships, the conversations, you know, waking and sleeping, eating and drinking, walking and talking in silence as well. This is how the world is redeemed, not apart from the three years, not apart from the triduum, the Paschal mystery is, you know, glorious death and is, is death and glorious resurrection. But I mean, what that does is to radiate outward. And you know, I think this overcomes the deception of the devil, where unless you are popular, unless you are voted into office, unless you are wealthy, unless you're center stage, you know, you're not really a part of the drama. You're just spectators, you know. And that deception to me is sort of how the Lord of this world, the prince of this world, Satan continues to sort of undermine the plan of love in marriages, in families, at workplaces, in neighborhoods, and this sort of thing. And, you know, I, I wrote a book called Ordinary Work, Extraordinary Grace, which has become for me the formula uh, that when I get home to heaven and I have to go through judgment— it won't be about how many books we wrote or how many talks we gave or the fact that last year I made, I think it was 62 speaking engagements with the help of the St. Paul Center team when all of this just stopped, you know, and I don't like the travel, but, you know, to recognize that, you know, my marriage, the friendship that I enjoy with Kimberly and with our kids and our grandkids, I mean, in the light of eternity, in the in the heart of God the Father, this doesn't just matter more than books and talks and stuff. I mean, this just swallows up all of the other stuff. The other stuff is important too, you know, but boy, I tell you, living it out and enjoying it right, I, I sense Jesus' presence in my heart and in our home and in other people's lives too, uh, much more in the ordinary things that we do. Uh, and not just praying together the divine office for the first time as a family, but in playing moods in other games that we did and watching not just the chosen, but in, you know, and watching entangled again, as well as frozen and frozen too. And, you know, uh, laughing and crying and just kind of throwing the Frisbee as well. Yeah. You know, as a, as a priest who uh, uh, certainly when I was pastor, right, I would spend much of my time burying the dead. And so you're, you're constantly with people as they're, grieving, but you're also constantly reflecting on somebody's life and trying to hold that up in front of somebody. And most frankly, or most people, quite frankly, don't live extraordinary lives in the way the world would describe extraordinary. Just like you said, 
but the experience of um, burying, I don't know how many thousands of people I've buried in my life. I, I have a holy jealousy for so many people that I've been honored to commend to the Lord and to offer mass for on their funerals who just loved greatly. Mm-hmm. Like they just 55 years of marriage, 17 grandkids worked hard was a man of integrity, a woman of kindness. I mean, like these are the great things, right? I mean, th- th- we're, we're so backwards oftentimes in understanding what's important and what's not. And again, the, the, the COVID 19 crisis that we're going through, I think is bringing people back to family, kind of what we were talking about earlier. And it's reminding us, well, maybe those things don't matter as much. Maybe, maybe marriage and family really does matter a lot more than seeking after, you know, success, the way the world views success. Maybe going for a walk with my grandchild matters more than, you know, watching another football game as fine as it is to watch a football game. So hopefully there's a reevaluation that's happening in our lives right now. You know, I, I think it, there is. I, I know there is. Um, one other thought that I have that I want to kind of tie into this is uh, how we view eternity and how we say goodbye to our loved ones. Obviously, we are intended to grieve their loss and anticipate our reunion without canonizing. I mean, prayers for the dead, I think, are sort of one of the most underrated parts of our life as Catholics, to pray for the dead, to suffrages and have masses said and that sort of thing. But I I don't think we ponder eternity enough to appreciate what's in store. I mean, when you die, your body decays and you have a soul that is immortal naturally. And in some way, you either go into the presence of God or you are purged and prepared for the presence of God, assuming that you've died in a state of grace. And so this, this experience of disembodied beatitude, you know, is not ultimate. Uh, we're not suddenly rendered angels in a kind of ethereal state. That's a temporary thing that St. Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 as, okay, we've put off the tent, this mortal body, but we haven't put on the temple, the building not made with hands. And so we we don't want to be unclothed, as it were. Uh, And so the recognition that we are going to get our bodies back, just as Jesus did, you know, and it's going to be my body completely transfigured, divinized, but it's still going to be my human body. Uh, it's going to be at its peak, as I explained in one of the chapters, you know, drawing from St. Thomas Aquinas and all of the doctors of the church. It's going to be your body. It's going to be my body. It'll be a male or female as such as we were. It's going to be at its peak. If we lost limbs or if we lost an eye, we get all of that back. But even more, the idea is that, you know, we are going to be empowered. You know, I, I go through the properties of the resurrected body in terms of impassibility. We won't be able to suffer or die or even grow weak. We also are going to be subtle. There is going to be, you know, we're going to escape this burden of, well, you know, I I want to stay up all night and finish this project. Well, I can't, I'm too tired. Or I want to continue talking, but I I have to get a meal or I have to use the rest. Our bodies are weighing our souls down. Never again will that happen. Instead, our bodies are going to be the instruments of glorified souls with subtlety and agility. You know, that's another property. Agility is such that, you know, the weakest saint in heaven will be more strong and more agile than the the greatest Olympic athlete in human history on this side of the veil. And I think that my favorite of the four properties, impassibility, 
uh, subtlety, agility is clarity. You know, because so often when we want to communicate respect, love, things that are meaningful to us, you know, I can be very opaque, even to Kimberly after 40 years, and to my kids as well. And so clarity is such that we're going to be able to communicate our deepest thoughts and, and, and desires and longing. And, and, and so with bodies like these together, we're going to experience what theologians call the beatific vision, but it's going to be so much more than a staring contest that we're going to have where we just kind of look at God. No, the God we're going to behold is from all eternity, Father. And as the only perfect Abba Father, I can't even really begin to anticipate how much delight he's going to take in us and show us show us to ourselves as, as we are, as we truly are his beloved sons and daughters, and therefore brothers and sisters. And so all of the ordinary things that make up our lives have been scripted from all eternity by a father who's going to reunite us in this everlasting family vacation. You know, get your watch out. You know, 10 billion years later, we will have had a chance to basically open up our hearts and share and hear other people and their lives. You were there. I didn't realize we went to the same high school or we were on the same plane flight or driving by each other. And all of a sudden, all of our stories are going to be told in an unhurried way with total love. And we realize you know, it's not just that we shared all of this overlap. All of our stories are going to end up becoming only one story, you know, literally his story, you know, God's right. fatherly plan. And, you know, after uh, a trillion years, the first minute of eternity, you know, we're going to be able to kind of go back over it again and get much more out of it and look at all things you know, through the eyes of a father, see the loving face of a father, and realize that we never realized what fatherhood meant on this side of things. And, you know, I, it's going to make the happiest, you know, the most joyful family reunion or vacation just seem like a garbage dump in comparison. And this isn't exaggeration. This isn't hyperbole. This is Christ in us, the hope of glory, but glory that the Father has sent the Son to give us the Spirit to make us a family, you know, and so we've been hurt in our families. We are estranged from members of our family, you know, but all of that is really kind of meant to show us what healing is. Uh, we're not just forgiven as pardoned criminals. We really are right. brought home. And I think when you talk about the properties, uh, one of the things that just pervades the book, uh, it, though it may not be said explicitly, uh, in a repetitive fashion, it's certainly implied over and over again that in heaven we're active, you know? And so I think for me, I can remember, you know, maybe as recently as 20 years ago, I was on a, just an extended vacation with some friends. It was just a wonderful time. And, and I remember looking at somebody um, and I said, I think I'm finally understanding what it means to say about the dead, may they rest in peace, because that, that expression used to just annoy the living daylights out of me. Like, I don't want to rest in peace. I don't want to sit on a couch for all eternity. I want to be active. I want, I, want to, I want to do things. But that experience, I can remember where I was when I said that, actually. And uh, there, was, there was no compulsion. I didn't have to do anything. Yeah. But I had tons of energy. And just the experience of being with great friends, you know, having great food, having conversation, having, we were, la I mean, we were living life. And I think um, because we have no experience of heaven, personally, we just don't, we, we have these silly images of, you know, playing a harp and sitting on a cloud, which doesn't sound like all that much fun for me personally. Um, I can remember a, 
I spend a lot of time praying for, and um, I hope this doesn't sound blasphemous, talking to the dead, because um, there's a thin veil, right? So life is Christ, death is gain. Um, I know they are somewhere. I don't know if they're home yet or not, but if they are, I know we can talk, and I can certainly pray for them. And I had a woman who uh, who came to see me um, about 15 years ago, and she was uh, we'd never met. She just said, hey, I was recommended to come talk to you by a friend. I said, okay, what can I do for you? She says, I just got diagnosed with lung cancer, and I have three months to live. I was told you can help me to learn how to die. So... I thought, I don't know if I can do that or not. Um, I, her name was Pat. And quite honestly, she taught me how to live much more than I ever taught her how to die. She ended up living about four or five years. Uh, I got to know her very well. She became an amazingly holy person. She was always a good woman, became a really holy person. I was with her right before she died, celebrated mass in her room with her brother, a couple other friends. I, I knew she was going to die that night. I said to her brother, just, just call me when she goes. And so he calls me about two in the morning. I got out of bed. I said a prayer. I got on my knees. And then I just said, uh, Pat, where are you? And she had this raspy voice. She had lung cancer. And uh, I heard her just say to me, Oh, Father John, you should see this. And I will never forget that. And, um, you know, God gives signs, right? I mean, there is a, you were talking about being with those who are grieving. By all means, we grieve, but there really is a thin veil between us and them. And we're able to pray for those who are not yet home. And those who are home, they are praying for us. And I had an image years ago of, uh, I was watching a college football game and it was, it was Texas A&M, Nebraska. I'll never forget this because it was a night game. It was Kyle Field and A&M, for which I have no allegiance and it's a whiteout, it's a night game, 100,000 people all dressed in white, you're bouncing up and down, and I'm just sitting there, I'm not praying, I'm watching a football game, and I hear the Lord say, John, that's heaven. <laughs> and I felt like he took me immediately to Hebrews 12. You know, so Hebrews 11, we got this great, you know, hall of faith from the Old Testament, and then Hebrews says, since then we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us persevere in running the race that is before us. And the imagery is very athletic, right? And I felt like that, that's just been a helpful image for me to live life, that we're on the field playing the game of life, if you will. And those who've gone before us who are already home with the Lord, they're in the stands and nobody in the stands is watching. They're there to change the outcome of the game. And somehow, you know, 100,000 people on their field or on their feet can motivate some guy with a football to do things that he'd never do in his backyard in front of mom and dad. And that's how I understand the Saints. Right. They're, they, more, they, alive than we, they're oh. more alive than we are. And they've played the game. They know the struggle, the suffering. But they're, they're more in love with us they, than they were when they were on the side of the veil. They're capable of praying for us and gaining grace for us. And so they have set the example. They have borne witness, but they still do. And not just the apostles and the saints that we know have been canonized, but, you know, I love November and the Feast of All Souls. But, I mean, just the recognition that you, the angels don't have computers that are capable of calculating the number of the elect. But even if they could, they can't calculate the joy, the intensity of the happiness that they have and how much they want to make it so that we get home to join them, you know? 
And I, I remember I was standing in line at a concert one night uh, with my oldest son, and uh, he was engaged at the time, and uh, it was sold out, and so we weren't sure what kind of seats we would get because we just had a general admission. And I was talking to a secular Jewish woman, and she had just lost her father, you know, and I said, oh, oh, thank God for, you know, she, I don't believe in God. And I said, well, you know, it's a good thing that God's existence doesn't depend upon us believing in him. I mean, he exists, and that's why I believe in him. And the fact that you love your dad so much, that love originates in him, and it didn't cease when your dad died. He still loves you. You still love him. And, you know, that is what we hold on to, and it's not just a kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. And she hugged me, and she got us the best seats in the house afterwards. And then we started emailing each other back and forth because she said, I always just thought, love depended upon how much I was feeling it and that God did too, you know? And, you know, it just seems to me that the objective reality of what we call truth is so much more meaningful and beautiful than we realize. And we, we, we don't say it too much, but we ponder too little. And, you know, at a, at a time like this, a pandemic opens the, the door for us to kind of ponder it in our hearts just like Our Lady does in Luke 2, 19. He, she pondered all these things in her heart. And it's not just the good times, it's the bad times, you know. And it's the fact that we have these people who have gone before us. We call them saints, but they are siblings like our own brothers and sisters might never have been. And uh, this is what it means to be a Catholic Christian, a son of God, a daughter of God. What would we rather want to be? Yeah, amen. In closing, I want to say thank you, Father John Ricardo, not only for the time that you've given to us today, but also for leading this new initiative called Acts 29. Do you have like 30 seconds where you could just share what it is you've been, you've been called to do in Acts 29? Yeah, so we, uh, we describe ourselves as itinerant missionaries whose goal is really to unleash the gospel and to equip both uh, ordained and lay leaders so as to help God accomplish his desire, which is to get his world back. Wow. You know, I thank you for the gift of your friendship, but also the partnership and the collaboration that we've had at these priest conferences. And I think there is a lot more to come. But uh, to, to wrap us up, would you conclude our time on a word of prayer and a blessing? Yeah, let's do that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the grace of uh, the conversation right now, uh, how good and pleasant it is when uh, brethren dwell in unity. Lord, we thank you for creating us to be alive at this time with all the challenges uh, that might be going on around us. We're mindful that we're not alive by chance, that you've willed us to live now uh, in the midst of all that's going on, that you've equipped us with gifts, both natural and supernatural. We thank you especially for the gift of faith. We ask that you'd continue to help us to understand more fully what it is that your son has accomplished for us and that you would uh, make of us men and women who are eager to be instruments in his hands, uh, equipped with the power of the Spirit so as to uh, bring the gospel to those who are in confusion and anxiety, who are afraid. Help them to know the good news that you are a Father who loves us, and that your Son has conquered the powers of evil, and that we have nothing to be afraid of. We ask all this in Jesus' all-powerful name. Amen. 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 